welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us uh, on another episode. We are still in quarantine. Uh, I am Shane Adams. And I am Brad Johnson. And we have a really special guest with us uh, for this episode. Uh, I, I called in a favor. He is the director of the Community of Christ Seminary at Graceland University. His name is Zach Harmon McLaughlin. Welcome, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me. We are excited to talk to you. We're so lucky to have you and Katie come out to the Olathe Congregation and, uh, you know, create a really wonderful worship with us. Uh, but, but before we get into kind of our conversation, one of the things that we like to ask our guests is, how are you doing? Like, how is, how is this affecting you and your family? Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a, it's such a crazy time. And um, I was actually on a meeting today and I led a devotion via Zoom. Um, and, and I just wanted to address the kind of, uh, this kind of a hokey word, but the cornucopia of emotions, right? Because on one hand, I mean, this is really one of those moments where joy and sorrow hold hands. Um, and there, there is so much to be grateful for in this time. I'm at home with my wife and daughter. Um, you know, I have that privilege to be in a safe home, to be with my, my family. We have food. I'm spending time in the backyard playing. Um, and I'm finding so much joy in ordinary everyday blessings because I've slowed down to notice. So on one hand, there's a lot of joy um, in this time. On the other hand, uh, my heart is breaking. Um, we have friends and communities, uh, ministers across the globe and, and church members who are in immense suffering. People are losing their jobs. People are dying alone. Families are grieving alone. Um, people's realities are changing where they can't pay the bills and they are struggling. And so there is all this suffering and pain while yet there is also opportunity and experience of joy and gratitude. And so I'm in one of those places where I'm just sitting with and naming both the sorrow and the joy, both the suffering and the gratitude and trying to pay attention to uh, God in the midst of it all. And the last kind of thing I'll say about it, you know, because it's just a really interesting time. In a lot of ways, not a lot has changed for me. Um, Katie and I have worked from home for a decade before we moved back to the Kansas City area. So coming back to work at home, is not a huge like paradigm shift for us. I run an online school uh, at Graceland University. So our program continues on without a lot of hiccup. Um, so, it, you know, in terms of logistics, not a lot of things have changed, but um, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of change, uh, it's just a really different time. And one of the stories that keeps coming to mind uh, is from Elie Wiesel. And he, he lived through the Holocaust in Germany. He wrote the book Night, which is a pretty famous book. A lot of people are aware of that book. Um, and he recalls this story. You know, obviously it wasn't a pandemic uh, that he was experiencing. It was a Holocaust. Um, and he, he recalls this story. They were in line. Um, I forget exactly where they were going. And as they were in line walking to where it was they were going, there were bodies hanging um, next to them as they were walking. And 
you know, everyone is full of sorrow and sadness. And he hears a voice shout out in the, in the line uh, of Jews walking. And the voice shouts out and says, where is God? Where is God? And Eli recalls hearing, you know, God reply by saying, I'm here hanging in the gallows. Um, this idea that God, God isn't this compartmentalizing, you know, deity that separates the good from the bad, but God is in the midst of this with us in both the joy and the sorrow. God shows up in the most ordinary things and proclaims blessing. And God shows up in suffering and says, here I am, you're beloved and you belong. And so we're in that moment. And I think Palm Sunday, Holy Week, Easter is, is such a great expression of what we're experiencing right now, because in those stories in scripture, God uses the most ordinary unimportant everyday things to proclaim blessing. So, you know, God uses a donkey for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem with a meaningless animal that has no significance um, in terms of society, in terms of status, culture. And yet God proclaims it, this, this stallion bringing a king, right? But it's a donkey. And, and the, the people, they pick up palm fronds, which is essentially fallen leaves from the trees, right? And they pick them up and they wave them as banners of peace. And so in our everyday life now, it's like, what are the things in my front yard, on the street, in my home that are proclaimed and beloved by God, that are blessings just yearning to be experienced by me, yearning to be noticed? And so... That was probably more than you wanted, but I find myself in this time of simply wanting to name it. Name the suffering, name the gratitude, name the love and the pain, um, and simply try to notice what God is up to in my midst uh, and how I can be reverent about that uh, as well as blessed by that. Mm. Love that. Yeah, I do too. Sorry, go ahead, Brad. Oh. Well, I, I was just going to say, you, you took over the seminary about a year ago, is that right? Or you became yeah. the director about a year ago? Before that, you were in California. Why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey after college and how you got to where you're at now? Because I'm assuming that when you wrote out your 10-year plan, <laughs> this was not on that end of that 10-year plan. No, this wasn't even on the 50-year plan. I, <laughs> I, I, I missed this one. So to know me is to know that I have never been the most academic or studious of people. And so uh, not, not that I don't love education, obviously I'm in this role, but um, so after college, I, I was the second person ever to take on what is now known as the graduate assistant for campus ministries at Grayson University. Um, it was, it's a program of the church sends you to, to seminary. Uh, they pay your tuition while you support campus ministries in Lamoni um, and the idea is to essentially invest in a leader, an emerging leader, um, and help create a career path for them to be a minister in the church. So I did that for two years after college in Lamoni. I got married to my wife, Katie, during that time. She also did that job for a year with me. Um, and then your good friend, Brad, Mark Richards, called us up. He, he's in Orange, California. And that's a long, complicated story, but Mark called us up not knowing us too crazy young adults and said, hey, why don't you come to Southern California and be pastors of our congregation? Um, 
to which we were like, we said, okay, <laughs> we, they flew us out for a weekend interview and I'll never forget, you know, I'm a Midwest boy, spent my whole life up to that point, um, at least living in Missouri. We went out to, to Orange and I remember they took us to the beach one day. We were on the beach. It was like 80 degrees. The waves are crashing. The sand is nice. It was amazing. And we turn around and we can see the snow capped mountains behind us. And we we're just like, this is paradise. <laughs> so they won us over pretty quick. So I worked for the church for a couple of years in Orange, California. And then I became a missionary coordinator for Pacific Southwest International Mission Center serving Southern California, Southern Utah, Las Vegas, Nevada, and Baja, Mexico. We then moved to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and I served as a missionary coordinator for the Eastern Great Lakes Mission Center, um, which is Northeast Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, and um, upstate New York, Niagara Falls, that kind of area. And then after a couple of years there, uh, I became mission center president of Sierra Pacific Mission Center. Uh, in Northern California and Western Nevada, and I did that for three years. So had a, a 10-year career with Community of Christ, uh, at which point both the church and Graceland approached me last year. Um, so during that time, I, I had decided that I wanted to pursue my doctorate. Um, I was doing a lot of advocacy work and interfaith work, and in a lot of those uh, settings, everyone is Reverend Doctor, Reverend Doctor, Reverend Doctor. And it's not so much that I wanted the title uh, for anything in particular, short of I wanted the title so I could have a seat at the table to fight and work for justice. Um, and, and so I, that was one of the reasons why I started pursuing this. And I just happened to be one of a handful of people who, who have a credential in religion and the community of Christ. And so when the church reached out to me, uh, I knew I wanted to participate in the seminary, not only because it changed my life, but I honestly believe that um, healthy, responsible religious education changes the world. And so here I am. We're, we're glad you're here and uh, getting to work with Shane and appreciate you being here as we uh, kind of do our weekly virtual service. Yeah. yeah, thanks. We're, I'm proud of Shane. I'm proud of what's happening at Graceland right now. Um, you know, we're in such an uncertain time, even before the pandemic, higher education is changing and Graceland is just doing some really incredible, innovative things. So we've got a great group over there. And if anyone listening to this is interested, you need to pop on over to graceland.edu because we've got some amazing things happening. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a nice pitch. Thank you for that. One of the things I like about, and, and, and we were talking about this briefly before, um, is the seminary just created a, a new kind of advertisement um, or trailer or whatever you want to call it, uh, for, for the seminary. And, uh, we're going to play a little bit of a portion of it, uh, right now. And then, uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Are you interested in changing the world? I am. People will often ask me why a theological degree matters and whether they're full-time or bivocational ministers or simply just interested in deepening their theological understanding, I always respond by reminding them of the world we live in and exactly why theology matters. When you look around at the world, when you really look, you'll quickly see an immense amount of marginalization, oppression, hatred, violence, and even war. 
When you look even deeper, you begin to see that many of these realities come from inappropriate and irresponsible theological interpretations. They're symptoms of a theological story that tell people they don't matter and they don't belong. What we do at Community of Christ Seminary at Graceland University is teach a world-changing, responsible, and transformational theological interpretation. This theological understanding tells a different story. It's a story of empowering women. It's a story of hospitality for the stranger. It's a story of restoration for the imprisoned and marginalized. It's a story of welcoming the LGBTQ plus friend. Ultimately, it's a story of belonging. The Community of Christ Seminary is interested in participating with God in God's preferred future. So come, change the world with us. So in that, you mentioned God's preferred future. Uh, and I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that uh, to, to, to understand what God's preferred future is. Yeah, so this is a bit of a complex idea that really could take up a whole hour-long podcast to unpack. Um, but we'll do the real short Cliff Notes version uh, if possible. So um, we've all heard the phrase, the kingdom of God, right? Um, and a lot of, in a lot of Christian circles, theological circles, we all wrestle with this idea of, you know, God's will. What does that mean? Uh, what does that look like? And, and what does that mean for my life? So when I say the, the phrase God's preferred future, that's a, a specific phrase that I use for a prophetic community. So to be prophetic means that you're participating with God, um, that there is a mutual interaction in relationship between us or you and God. And so saying God's preferred future, what I'm essentially saying is it is kind of in some ways uh, a, a radical idea because what I'm saying is that God's future doesn't exist yet, that we're co-creating that with God. Um, and that the way in which creation is now, and when I say creation, I mean the world is not God's ultimate hope. If you read the prophets, if you read Micah, Amos, uh, Isaiah, um, read the, read the prophets, Jesus, right? You quickly get this idea from scripture that, the kingdom of God is not what is at hand. Now there are glimpses of it. There are moments of it. There are, are glimmers and bursts of it, but to participate with God in creating God's preferred future, we are participating. We're in relationship where we are working to cultivate, to nurture and to create. So being a prophetic body, being a prophetic community means that we participate with God to create God's preferred future. And God's preferred future is, is a place that is inclusive. Uh, it's a place where justice reigns. It's a place where people aren't abused by scripture. They're loved and find belonging in it. Um, it's a place where LGBTQ plus people aren't persecuted, um, but they're embraced with, with warmth. Uh, and so God's preferred future is, is something that we are constantly working toward. It is our Isaiah 11 moment, right? It's the lion and the lamb, uh, the, the wolf and the fatling. Um, and so this idea of being Christians, it's a radical idea. It, it's an idea of radical community that 
is counter to our culture, counter to our norms that upends the status quo um, and flips everything on its head. And Jesus does this over and over and over again in the gospels where he says, wait, you're, you're, you're not getting it. It's, it's not what's, what you think is normal. Um, and so participating with God and God's preferred future is really a statement to say, Hey, uh, this is not on God alone. If you read scripture, um, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to participate with God. Um, and so we are co-creators with God, continuing to cultivate and nurture God's being into existence in our world. And so if we want the kingdom of God to be at hand, that is work we do as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. It's not some, you know, some Calvary is going to come over the hill one day and magically fix everything and it's going to be all perfect and we can move on. Um, it's hard, arduous work of a community that sees something different and wants to participate and work to bring that about. How does that God's preferred future tie in with our concept that we used to talk a lot about Zion? Where, where would you mesh those two together? I, I would say that they're almost essentially identical, right? Um, it's, it's just a different way of saying it. So we've always been a Zionic church and whether or not we've used the phrase God's preferred future or not, um, we have always experimented in participating with God, right? And, and that's where our, our tradition of reunions and retreats come from. Um, you know, fun little history fact for everyone listening. Um, it was a moment just like this, just like COVID-19 that gave birth to reunions in the 1890s. Up into that point, up into the 1890s, the church met every year for a general conference. Every year they would pull everybody in um, and they would come together in either, whether it was Illinois or later on in Lamoni, um, they would gather for a general conference. Well, the church quickly realized this was putting incredible financial strains on families, on the church, and it was becoming really unrealistic to meet. And so they had to make an innovative change. They had to address it. And out of that, they said, well, if we can't meet for general conference every year, how can we participate in Zionic community? Because the reason we get together is to experience that. Out of that was birthed this idea of reunions. Okay, we won't go to general conference, but I've got this, this field I own in Guthrie Grove. Let's go out there and we'll camp. We'll, we'll share together in community. Um, and so, you know, moments like this, when everything changes, this is where innovation is born. It's where new ideas are formed. So when we used to talk about Zionic community, we were essentially saying it's our job as community of Christ um, to participate with God, to bring about the kingdom of God. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we exist as disciples of Jesus, because we believe that there is a greater vision set forth for what this world can be than what it is. And so I really think it's, it's a, those words, Zion, kingdom of God, God's preferred future, peaceable kingdom. These are all similar ideas in terms of what we're ultimately hoping for um, in participating with God. So I, I was thinking about like where we are in the Christian calendar, um, which would put us somewhere around where Jesus gives the disciples the Great Commission. And uh, I was thinking about what the Great Commission 
means in today's world and how you would associate that. Um, and this is based on conversations that you and I have had with seminary work uh, and the way that, um, to, to quote you, to you, uh, everything is theological and every everything that like every it feels like most conflicts are driven out of you know um the, the improper or uh unfortunate interpretations of uh theology mm-hmm. uh, so when when we talk about the the great commission what does that mean in today's world to you that's a good question. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I do stand behind the statement that everything is theological. Um, no matter where you work or what you do or where you live, um, you're encountering theological expressions and perspectives every day, uh, whether you know it or not. Uh, the Great Commission, you know, is actually a great place to to start with that because one of the ways that has been interpreted is Um, I'm going to baptize you and fix your life with Jesus. And if you don't accept that, you're wrong. I'm right. You're bad. I'm good. Um, And it instantly creates this division, right? This, this us and them mentality. And many churches, ours included for years, had that mentality, right? In 1960, if you would have walked into any RLDS congregation in the Kansas City metro area and said, tell me about your church, we all know what you would have been hit with, what, what someone in the congregation would have said, right? They would have said, we're the one true church. Um, let me tell you the story of who we are. And, and this idea, whether it was conscious or subconscious, embedded or deliberative, was this idea that we're right and you're wrong. Now, we can teach you to be right. And if, if you learn that, you can be part of us. Um, but if you can't, then you're just wrong and too bad for you. We don't really believe that anymore. And, and here's why. And this is where it gets a little complicated. And, and, and I hope everyone who's listening doesn't misunderstand me. I am a 70 in the community of Christ. Um, I am a baptizer. I am a person who my deepest desire is to go out and to share the good news with people. When I, share, when I say share the good news, I'm not, I'm not talking about some one-time transactional interaction where I sell a product, they buy it, and somehow their life is fixed. I'm talking about sustained, long-term life transformation. I can no longer see the world the way I once did because my whole life is different now, right? That's very different than these transactional, I'm going to go in, I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to leave, and I'm going to move on and so on and so forth. So I think one of the, the big problems we, we have with today, we have today is that we, we treat the church and often the Great Commission like we treat businesses as if it's a product to be sold, as if it's a piece of a capitalist economy that can somehow be traded and transacted, when in reality, that's not the good news. The good news isn't a product to be sold. It doesn't work with e-commerce. It's not part of a global capitalist economy. The good news is about transforming lives to, ex- to do exactly what we just talked about, which is to participate with God to say this world is not the way in which God intended it. 
I'm going to participate with God, engaging in the works of peace, the works of justice, the works of love, the works of hope. And we are going to make this world so that a little child can sit down next to a lion and a lamb and peace prevails. And that is a totally different version and vision of what exists. Right now, I think more often than not, we see the church seal and we we think it's some aspirational idea and we have very little conviction in its reality. When in truth, that's possible. And in the contemporary way to think about this, the way I think about it, being a little hyperbolic, is what does it look like for a white nationalist neo-Nazi to sit at the communion table with an African-American transgendered lesbian, to break bread, to look one another in the eye and say, I love you. You are God's beloved, right? So we have to totally reframe and rethink the way in which we think about, you know, our typical compartmentalized ideas of right, wrong, good, bad, you belong, you're in, you're out, you don't belong, uh, this, that, and the other, which so often the Great Commission has been pointed to to say, listen, if you're not baptized, if you don't follow Jesus, you're out. Here's the problem with that thinking. Again, anyone listening, do not misunderstand me. I believe in Jesus Christ. I've been baptized. I am a proclaimer of the good news. I go out and baptize others in the name of Jesus Christ. The problem with thinking there is only one way to truth, there is only one way to God, is this. It limits God's love and grace. And when we start to put limits on God, we have to instantly assume that these ideas are coming from our own human construct and not from the Holy Spirit. If I am to say, um, because you haven't accepted Jesus, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Essentially, what I'm saying is that God's love has a limit. God's grace has a limit. And its limit is X. The problem with that is that we know as a community of Christ, as a prophetic body, and we could go through both the Bible, we could go through the Doctrine and Covenants, we could even go to the Book of Mormon, over and over again are proclamations that God's love knows no bounds, that God's love has no limits, that God's grace is beyond our understanding. Our theological paradigm begins and ends with the understanding that God is mystery. And so when we start compartmentalizing, when we start saying right, wrong, this and the other, we're instantly imposing our own ideas and agenda and framework onto God and saying, okay, these are God's limits. God can't do this. God can't do that. God's love stops here. God's grace ends there. And when we do that, we need to be real cautious um, about who God is and what we're proclaiming when we talk about God. Um, the other, the other really important piece to remember here is that we're telling stories that are thousands of years old. Um, and it's hard for us to think in, in these terms because, you know, we're human and we think the way we think. Um, and so I'll use a quote from one of my favorite biblical scholars, John Dominic Crossan. And he says this, uh, and, and where I'm going with this is essentially the way in which we read scripture. And so John Dominic Crossan says this, it's not that those ancient people told literal stories and we're now smart enough to take them metaphorically. 
but that those ancient people told metaphorical stories and we're now dumb enough to take them literally. What I mean by that is when we take scripture and we try to proof text it and make it work for our exact moment in time, we miss the heart of how it was being told, who it was being told to, and the metaphor it was expressing in the first place. So this idea of the Great Commission, um, the author who wrote Matthew, uh, roughly 50 to 100 years after Jesus's death, had no concept of an earth that would have 7 billion inhabitants, right? The author who wrote Matthew had no concept of global travel, no concept that the earth was round, no concept, you know, these things weren't a normative thought like they are for us, right? And so what does, what is the author really trying to say when the author says, go therefore and baptize, make disciples in all the nations? Um, Is that a literal proclamation that every single person needs to be baptized? Um, Or is this an invitation to participate with God in God's preferred future? How does God work? Where does God, how does God engage in humanity? How does God manifest the good news um, to people in rural parts of China who will never, ever encounter a Christian missionary or the Christian story? Are they somehow dismissed by God because they never heard the good news? So the way in which we interpret scripture, the way in which we impose our will on God rather than allowing God's will to become ours, uh, these shape the way in which we think and the way in which we engage with this in the world. And ultimately what happens is, you know, stories from scripture begin to become, you know, clubs for which people can abuse other people and say, well, scripture says, if you're a woman, you don't matter. And so, sorry, that's what scripture says. Well, no, we know that's, that's not, that's not God's hope. And so when we interpret scripture through a healthy and responsible lens, we're able to understand the metaphor, the deeper thought process, the deeper truth behind these stories. Um, so I could, I could go on and on about this. I'm not sure how long you want me to talk about it, but, but I mean, I'm, this is really important stuff because our job is to proclaim the good news. Our job is to go out um, and transform lives, to baptize, to share the Holy Spirit. But it's not meant to be transactional. It's not meant to be a product. And my last little anecdote I'll, I'll share on this and then I'll, I'll pitch it back Um, is actually another scripture in Matthew, Matthew 27, just a few verses before Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, where Jesus is dead, he's he's resurrected, he comes back to his disciples, um, and what does he do? Does he tempt them with, with belief or faith? He says to them, where were you? Um, where were you when I was hungry, when I was cold, when I was naked, thirsty? And the disciples, they answer, they say, Jesus, we've been doing all the good stuff you told us to do. We've been believing all the things you told us to do. And Jesus flips the narrative on their head again, right? These are the disciples. These are the good church people of our day. It says, though the Gentiles, the non-believers, because of their faith, because they showed up and fed me, gave me drink, theirs is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus totally, you know, has this great reversal and, and, and they're like, wait a minute, 
faith isn't belief. They're different. And, and so anyway, I just share that to, to point out this reality that the way in which we interpret scripture, the way in which we understand salvation, the way in which we understand God all goes into this funnel that ultimately helps us understand what God is inviting us to right here and now in the present. I, I, I love the idea that, um, you know, the, the invitation is to be participative with God, um, to participate with God. And what I, what I've always taken from, um, the, the great commission and, and kind of that, that charge to go out and make disciples of the world is not like that, that it was specifically these people who were called to do that, not these 12 disciples, but it, but it's all like, I feel like that, that commission is to all of us. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get hung up a lot of times is that we don't necessarily always feel worthy and we don't always feel like we know exactly what to say. And yet uh, if we have the ability to just see just a glimpse just our own specific little tiny interpretation of our view of God. And we're willing to share that with somebody else. That's Mm -hmm. the good news. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's how simple it can be is just sharing your witness of this small, tiny impact or, or encounter that you may have had with what you felt like was divine being able to share that with somebody else that is carrying out the great commission, maybe in uh, a little bit squishier of a way, but, but in a, in, in a way that is still fulfilling, I think the, the, the calling. Right. Well, so that, I think that's like the point, right. Is that there is no prescriptive one size fits all approach, right? Like, there isn't this, this thing that says, Hey, if you don't do X, Y, and Z exactly right, you've done this wrong. And if you read through Matthew, since that's where the great commission is over and over again, Jesus is trying to implant this idea in the disciples heads. Hey, you and I are the same. I am in you. You are in me. Do you get it? Like we're part of this together. And even after Jesus dies, even in the great commission, I am with you always. This isn't just, you know, the Zach show or the Shane show, right? This is uh, you literally are my hands and feet. To be a disciple in early Judeo society here literally meant you became your rabbi. You would literally even take on your rabbi's name when, when you were finished studying, being a disciple of your rabbi. So this idea, right, of the Great Commission is that we are the embodiment, the flesh, the bones of Jesus Christ in our world. This is where communion comes from when we break that bread it's literally part of us in our body. Jesus is in our body, the, the wine, Christ's blood within us, part of us. I am in you. You are in me. We are perfectly one. Um, and so the idea to do this prescriptive thing is like, it's kind of nuts. It's like, wait a minute. It's exactly what you said, Shane. It's these transformative moments of encounter that we part, when we participate with God, and whether that's vulnerability, authenticity, um, however it comes up in the most random places, right? I could, we could talk for hours about, you know, 
how many times I've been in a line at Chipotle and all of a sudden I, I'm overcome with the spirit and this idea that I need to, I need to share with my neighbor here who I've never met, who's ordering a burrito. And yet God shows up and says, share the good news. Um, and that's that. how it works. <laughs> do, you, do you start talking to the people in those situations? Every time, every time. Good for you. You are 70. <laughs> Amen. Well, what, what about the people like me who might have that inclination and in somehow I talk myself out of that? Sure. You know, and it might not be the person in Chipotle, but it's somebody who I actually know who expresses something to me and I hold back from going all the way in like I should and I know I should. Well, yeah. yeah. Solve that problem for me. I'm not, I'm not sure I can solve that problem for you, except to say this. And, and you know, there'll be different opinions on this and perspective about this, but um, particular to our context, we suffer from American individualism, right? Um, we're really, particularly us Midwest folks, we don't want to stick our nose in other people's business. And we often don't want to feel like we're imposing our perspective on someone else. Um, and so I even, I have these feelings all the time, like, I don't, you know, I don't know their whole situation. I don't want them to feel bad or something, you know, whatever it is. At the end of the day, to be a prophet, to be a prophetic people, um, means that we must participate with God. Every prophet in scripture stops what they're doing because they are responding to God's invitation in their life. Um, for Moses, it was a burning bush, right? Um, it happens for different prophets, different ways throughout scripture, but no matter what, somehow they stop and they say, here I am, God. And then more often than not, God will invite them to do this crazy thing. And then the, the prophets usually respond by saying, no, 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 never mind. I didn't really mean to say yes. Uh, think of someone else. Ultimately God wins <laughs> and they go on, right. And, and do this incredible thing. But, um, I, the the other good news here is that God's not a one and done kind of God. God's not going to just be like, oh well, you know, Brad, you didn't you didn't participate with me the last time I put that you know encouragement in your heart to talk to someone, so you're on your own. The God I know, the God that has transformed my life, is nothing but aggravating and disrupting, um, and constantly showing up. and And while I make it sound like, yeah, I'm always talking to strangers. There are plenty of times when I say, no, God, I'm too busy or I've got this stuff going on. And, you know, I, I would tell you the times that I respond to it and, and it, it might not be stranger strangers, but it's people I might not know as well or whatever, or even sometimes people I do know well that I hesitate to call for whatever reason, even though I know I should. A lot of times it's my wife. June says, <laughs> you need to call them. It's never failed to be the right thing to do whether June's told me to do it or if I've just done it on my own, it never fa never fails to be the right thing to reach out to people in whatever manner you're led to. Um, you know, I'm, you know, and so I don't know why I don't always respond. Maybe we should cut that out. Maybe we don't want to have this true confessional in this uh, <laughs> podcast today, but that, that's what makes me think. That's, that's what, staying in. That's staying in. <laughs> because because our, our our flaws, I think I think that that's the part that I've always connected with uh, when it comes to the disciples. That these dudes were flawed beyond belief. 
Oh yeah. And, 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 and God really uses flawed people throughout our heritage and our story to, to show what we're capable of uh, just through our own decisions. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's you telling us that we don't have to be born a certain way and we don't have to have a certain capability. I mean, what God has been able to do with those who are willing to participate, uh, like, uh, you know, Moses who stuttered and, and, you know, or, or David who was all sorts of bad, (laughs) uh, but, but God has said, look, I'm here, maybe not even despite your flaws, but because of them. And I, that's, that's always been something that I've loved about the, the scriptural heritage is, is that the lesson, and maybe that, that tells you a lot about me, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that I connect with the, the flawed people. Yeah. Well, you, you look at, like, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's never a non-alcoholic who helps the current alcoholics to um, get over and get into sobriety. It's always somebody who is an alcoholic who has conquered sobriety. Um, And that's probably a lot of ways that we move forward in a lot of things in life. You have maybe sometimes, not that we want to go out and do the wrong things, but sometimes (laughs) doing the wrong things helps us understand how to get to the next step and help somebody else get to the next step. Yeah. Well, if you can believe that, that, that has flown by, but our time is pretty much up and it went way, way faster than we didn't I really get into the, the doubt stuff. I was, no, we didn't talk about that. The, the main topic at all. Well, which, I'll give which you is I'll, like my wheelhouse. I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of minutes to, to spend some time. Like, is there anything else that you want to say to the listeners uh, about doubts or about anything else? Well, I just, you know, I, w- I, was, I w- was hoping to talk about it just because I think doubt gets a really bad rap in uh, faith. And so I was going to make the argument that actually to be a good disciple is to be a doubting disciple. Um, and that belief requires doubt. Um, and Willie Thomas, the best disciple. Uh, well, you could argue that because of Thomas's doubt, he was the most convicted disciple. Okay. Um, it was Thomas's doubt that that drove him to have the most transformative experience in the the upper room. And so, um, and and actually, Jesus doubts constantly. Jesus's last question as he's hanging on the cross, is a doubt of God. Um, It's doubt and wonder. And again, because we've been talking about prophetic people and what it means to be a prophet, you cannot be a prophet and know. Let me restate that. You cannot be a prophet and know. To to be a prophet is willing to not know something. It's this willingness to say, here I am, God, I have no idea what we're going to do or how we're going to do it, but you've said show up and I've said here I am. And so let's move, right? And one of, one of the authors I love, she says, all the great discoveries in the world have only happened because the discoverers were willing to not know something. And so 
to be a mature disciple literally means that we have to ask questions and we have to wonder and we have to push on things. And, and the truth about belief, we don't like to talk about this, but belief is fluid. Um, and here, here is simple proof of that. When I was a child, um, my beliefs about God were very different than what my beliefs are now as a 34-year-old adult. Does that mean my beliefs as a child were any less important or true than my beliefs as a 34-year-old adult? No. What it means is that I've matured, right? And that I've continued to ask questions, that I've continued to probe. And, and this is right out of the Jesus playbook. Jesus doubts and wonders and says, are you sure, God, is this really what you want us to do? You really want us to go in there and do this thing? And so Jesus has this pattern. He doubts, he wonders, he retreats into spiritual practice and prayer. He comes out and he lives prophetically. He doubts, he wonders, he retreats into spiritual practice and prayer. He acts prophetically. He doubts and wonders, right? And so there's this like cycle of constant question and wonder. And I think oftentimes we put doubt in the category of, of bad. Like if you doubt somehow you're, you're a not good Christian, when in reality, all the people who doubt in scripture often tend to be these just incredible ambassadors of faith, right? Thomas included. Thomas doubts and wonders. And, and actually, if you read the Great Commission, this is great. It literally starts off by saying, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. The, the church of Jesus Christ is a collective of doubting worshipers, people who are constantly saying, is this for real? How can me, broken, uh, selfish, ridiculous Zach, be a beloved son of God? How can that be? And if I ever don't doubt that, I really need to start seriously worrying about my mental health. Like the reality is anytime I feel any ounce of certainty about my faith, I get really uncomfortable and really discouraged quickly because the truth is God's God's mystery is so beyond my own understanding. I have three degrees in religion and I am filled with nothing but doubt and wonder. And I, I, I honestly believe that it's that doubt and wonder that empowers and inspires my faith to prophetically participate with God in creating God's preferred future. I think that's a wonderful place to end. Uh, I think, you know, this has been a really fun conversation. I hate to cut it short, but, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we got to give the people what they want. And what they want is something shorter than an hour, I think. Amen. Maybe, Amen. maybe we can invite you back for a, a part two sometime. Anytime. Yeah. Anytime. We'd love to have you again. Uh, just thank you so much, Zach, for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Uh, here's to being uncertain. Uh, and uh, this has been another episode of our special COVID-19 podcasts. I'm Shane Adams. And I'm Brad Johnson, uh, reminding you to stay courageous and wishing you blessings.